thank you very much for that uh, introduction and warm welcome and thank you for coming uh, this evening. Uh, it's a delight for me to be back in Oxford. Um, it's a city in which I spent, I think, 26 years of my life. Um, but actually in those 26 years, I'm ashamed to say I never set foot in the Union. Um, I was a, a student here and I still never set foot in the Union. So this is a privilege. Um, I, I don't think I was barred, but may, maybe I was. I'm delighted to be here uh, this evening. And I'm going to talk about something that I'm quite passionate about, which is policing. I love it. I have had great satisfactions and great fulfilment uh, being a police person. And I'm going to start by a sort of very brief introduction uh, into modern policing and hopefully, interestingly for you, a reminder of just how much has changed in the last 35 years. I left Oxford in uh, 1983. Um, and then I'm going to focus on a highly sort of contested area, uh, the police use of data in, in the digital age. Policing always requires difficult decisions about the appropriate balance of important goods, uh, appropriate balance in modern parlance of human rights. And if I asked any one of you what you thought the role of the police is, you'd probably all come up with something slightly different. In fact, I know you would. I've tested this out. It's not, it's not laid down in statute. Um, but we could coalesce, I imagine, around uh, keeping the peace, upholding the law, protecting life and property, preventing crime, investigating crimes if they happen, ensuring victims receive proper support. If we then went to the next stage and asked what should be the priorities and how do you work those out, and indeed how should policing be done, I am sure we would have some very very healthy debates and we may do uh, later on uh, this afternoon. My police service, the Met, was founded in 1829 by Sir Robert Peel uh, and Peel laid down some important and in fact enduring in many respects uh, principles, uh, in many respects fit for the data age and something that we go back to quite often. So it was Peel uh, who did talk about the need to use minimum force. Um, it was Peel who talked about prevention being more important, the first and most important thing uh, that a police person should do to prevent crime. It was Peel who talked about policing by consent, Peel who famously said uh, the police are the public and the public are the police. Peel who made the point that the public have to take responsibility for their own safety and security and that they have duties to get involved and prevent crime themselves. Um, I could go on. These are ancient but quite enduring principles. And here I am uh, as the commissioner of the current Met, very privileged role. Um, we are the largest by quite a long way police service uh, in the UK. We have about 40,000 people. We are first and last a neighbourhood service and we try to involve the public a great deal uh, in our work. We police the great city of London, which as you know is growing, uh, heading towards 10 million in you know, time not too far away at all. 
Uh, it's probably the most diverse city on the planet. Uh, it has its challenges, but it also goes on changing and thriving uh, and being the financial hub uh, for the UK and, of course, our capital city. And so that makes the responsibilities of the Met just slightly different from some other forces. We have the responsibilities of all the events. Many of you will have been to London or come from London. So it has more major events going on in it than any other city in the world. It also has almost certainly more protest <laughs> going on than any other city in the world, a subject we may come back to. Uh, certainly more single protest events, I think, of a, diff of a very diverse sort. We have the responsibility for uh, leading counter-terrorist policing nationally, uh, and we also have the responsibility for protecting uh, quite an unusual role, actually, for a police service around the world, but we protect uh, senior government ministers, uh, the head of state, um, uh, uh, Her Majesty the Queen, her, all the royal family, and visiting heads of state. We don't think we're perfect, <laughs> we absolutely aren't, but we are known uh, in many respects, as a world leader in policing, we have a brand which is uh, very well known around the world and frequently opens doors for UK uh, PLC, for the government, uh, when uh, Scotland Yard says it, it's here to assist in some way or other. Indeed, I have a number of officers who are posted around the, the world specifically to deal with counter-terrorism. Uh, and to keep you, help keep UK uh, interests and people safe working with our partners. We um, are visited by about 400 different police services every year and some of our techniques and some of the ways we go about things, both historic and new, from community policing through to our use of automatic number plate recognition, from public order uh, through to counter-terrorism, we are seen as a service that people want to learn from and we regard ourselves as a service that is very permeable to ideas uh, from around the world as well. The priorities at the moment will not surprise you. Uh, we have a very high priority which I set out as soon as I became commissioner uh, to tackle uh, violence in its, all its manifestations and in particular as it affects young people. We have a priority to increase the confidence that the public have in their police service and in particular to try to reduce the gap between those who are less confident and those who are more confident in their police service. I have a priority to ensure that my people feel that they are well led, well equipped, well supported, uh, reasonably safe at work and we want to be, which is where I come to uh, my sort of dilemmas if you like later on, a world leader as a digital service in a modern, diverse uh, democracy. We take our values very seriously. I know lots of organisations say that, but we really do. Um, and you will hear people talking about them a lot. Uh, and if I think earlier this week, I was commending some officers for their various actions. And we talk about courage, we talk about compassion, we talk about integrity, we talk about professionalism. Uh, we also talk about impartiality. But when I was thinking about these commendations, you know, I was commending an, a, a, an officer for an amazing piece of investigative work over several years that um, brought down, if you like, an Albanian-based organised crime group, huge amounts of drugs and money seized, and a multiplicity of people uh, arrested. 
I was commending people who worked on the Grenfell Tower fire, those officers who spent six months in Grenfell Tower on their hands and knees, uh, sifting through all the evidence, those officers who've worked with the families, those officers who worked in the mortuary. I was commending an officer who had thrown himself under a lorry which was on fire because the person who drove the lorry thought that he could put the fire out with some water, which he definitely could never have done. The officer knowing full well that the likely thing in a lorry like that is that the tyres will explode and cause a fireball, which indeed happened about 30 seconds after he managed to wrestle, literally wrestle the man out. An officer who um, negotiated with, if you like, spoke to, gained the trust of a young woman who was intent on throwing herself off a balcony and grabbed hold of her at great personal risk. So our kind of values in those, in those little stories are very obvious, but actually on an every day they're very obvious. So as I speak, I know there will be officers um, running into very great danger. <laughs> That's what they do. I know there will be officers treating people at the worst time in their lives with great humanity, helping somebody with mental health issues uh, as they struggle, helping somebody in custody who is completely lost and has somehow found themselves uh, committing a crime compassion and courage and moral courage being shown uh, all the time. I could go on, I hope you see I am proud of them and what they do, the people they are and what they stand for. As I said I left here in um, actually in 1982, I had a short somewhat misguided spell in accountancy um, and I worked uh, in a fish and chip shop while, while messing about on the river for a while but I became then a police officer on patrol in the West End of London, uh, and it was a joy. I felt I make, made a difference. I still sometimes think I make a difference, and I loved working with the richest and the poorest in society, the most powerful, the most helpless, uh, being with people at times of great celebration and also, of course, trying to assist at times of desolation. When I look back, an awful lot has changed, and I would talk about it probably in two very big themes in terms of our service. The first thing is we are so much more accountable, transparent, less frankly arrogant, uh, and I mean no disservice to you know, my generation in the 80s, less secretive, less inward looking. We are much more professional, and of course we are much more diverse. The second big theme, which will be true in all your lives as well, and your parents' lives, is technology and communications have massively changed the police service. They've changed the way crime is enabled and they've given us so many different opportunities. When I joined, can you believe DNA had not been invented? Uh, so the, all the developments you'll see on the documentaries and dramas in forensic science, with the exception really of fingerprints, have happened in the last uh, few decades. We had typewriters, <laughs> we had index cards of intelligence, so they were physical bits of paper that you had in a box and you'd write your latest bit of intelligence on the name, Cressida Dick, you know, what we know about her. And then you could go through the box to see what was latest known about the local criminals. Uh, we didn't have computers, obviously. We had very rudimentary radios. And you'll now, most of you, be very well aware of the kind of technology that we work with and the investigative opportunities that that gives us, uh, the extraordinary capabilities uh, that are now available to police services and, of course, uh, to others. But as so much has changed, in some ways 
Uh, some things haven't, <laughs> I would say. Um, if I sit next to my call handlers, I hear them dealing with the same sort of pickles that people get themselves into, the same things that people are doing to each other, uh, the same types of crimes that are being committed. And actually the nature of policing, I think, has some real kind of, I'm afraid, truisms that remain. Most people want, to be other, want other people to be policed rather more than them. Thank you very much. If you think of the police uh, officer and the fire officer and the ambulance officer, you might think ambulance people, angels. You might think fire person, heroes. And we are angels sometimes and we are heroes sometimes, but we're also sometimes not very popular particularly with people who are on the receiving end of policing um, and the use of force, for example. Police officers and other truism, police officers have an enormous amount of discretion and that discretion very deliberately sits with the constable. So they can make their own decisions on the street, not uh, the senior officer on most occasions. The police service is the service of last resort um, and increasingly, sadly, we are filling the gaps left occasionally by other services, but we are the service of last resort. Police can use force legitimately in a way that nobody else can, uh, including, of course, lethal force on occasions. They make split-second decisions in collapsing time frames, often uh, with far too little information. They have to do something, and if that something is uh, thought to be wrong by another party, it can end up being examined in a courtroom or a living room, or a multiplicity of uh, the same, in minute detail, sometimes for years and years to come. And one of the changes, of course, that I have seen is that the scrutiny on the officer has increased massively. So all my officers have body-worn video, and most of them are being videoed when they are out on the street, if they are in an interaction with a member of the public uh, that is sort of contested in some way. I think they're arguably the most scrutinised professionals going about their job in the world. Um, and because, as I say, <laughs> they deal in high risk, they use force, uh, today's hero can easily become tomorrow's villain. In many situations, the police can't win. Uh, we are the referee. <laughs> you think of warring neighbours, disputes that go on for years, police officer in the middle trying to do their best, find out what's gone on, uh, try to help these people come to some sort of resolution. You think every day almost on the streets of London we will have one set of protesters and another set of protesters who come at something from a diametrically opposite set of opinions. We try to be utterly impartial and ensure that they are all policed fairly and equally, if you like, but usually, or often, some will feel that the others have had a better spot to protest at or some difference of, of, of service because they won't necessarily understand the con context. One uh, quite well-known academic in policing once said, the police are the anvil on which society's problems are hammered out. Think of a child abuse situation, asking a police officer to walk in there, and keep happy, if you like, not the right word, but reasonably content with the service. You know, the abuser, the child, the um, social services, 
the uh, person who advocates for the child in court, and so on and so forth. It is sometimes a slightly thankless task, um, and therefore they have to, I have to rely on the fact that they're good people with good values and good training doing their best in difficult situations. But for about half of my police service, we've operated with the Human Rights Act, and that gives us police people a very useful framework for solving some of our sort of age-old dilemmas. So ever since our founding, we and our public have debated how much force is it legitimate to use in a particular situation. How do we balance the freedom to protest, or in modern parlance, the freedom to express your opinion and the freedom to assemble, with other people's rights to go about their lawful business, whilst we protect life and property and prevent crime and disorder? How much can the police intrude into people's privacy? In intruding into a suspect's privacy, how much should we be able to intrude into other people's privacy? Members of their family, for example, uh, passers-by. And it's this that I just want to focus on uh, for a few minutes. So this is one of the big challenges for policing uh, in the digital age. And I think there are some challenges which are rather unique to policing in the digital age, but happy to debate that with you. Firstly, and most significantly, is the extraordinary breadth of data sources that we are now required to retrieve, to examine, to exploit. Put simply, society quite rightly expects that the police should be able to assess a vast range of data in order to safeguard the public. Some of you will have seen that the Director General of MI5 commented on something quite similar earlier on today in the, uh, in the intelligence agency's world. But unlike in private industry or other branches of the public sector, we can't afford to discount categories of data or specific technologies. Whether we're talking about financial data, communications data, CCTV data, automatic number plate recognition, open source, seized digital data, I could go on. There is a public expectation that we should be able to use that data to both prevent and to detect crime. In this sense, policing is in an almost unique position. Almost no other agency or industry faces the same obligation to operate with this breadth of data types. And clearly the range of data types that we produce as a society is growing daily. As Andrew said today, the haystack is getting larger and the needle smaller. A practical example of this uh, looks like this for our officers. If we think of CCTV today as opposed to 10 years ago, in some respects, 10 years ago, antiquated as it was, was a sort of halcyon era. We seized CCTV on something that was called a VHS cassette. Uh, we now recover CCTV in over 2,000 different digital formats from across London. So whilst we have much more CCTV available, and obviously that gives us lots of investigative opportunities, there's an ever-growing technical cost if we are to exploit it effectively. And this trend, I think, is obviously going to only increase, particularly we think about the Internet of Things, the ever-increasing range of digital devices that are used to support all our daily lives. So you get investigative opportunity, but you also get investigative complexity. Linked to the breadth of data types we now work with is the tangential problem of data volume. Where once we might have seized a mo mobile phone and expected to recover a handful of text messages, we're now in the position where digital seizures are measured in terabytes. Uh, 
And whilst this isn't typical, we can now face the challenge of assessing over 70 terabytes of seized data within a single investigation. Now, some of you will be tech people. You're all going to be more tech than me, I suspect. But you may be thinking, well, seven, 70 terabytes doesn't sound that much. Is it, is it really that big? In the grand scheme of data volumes that are handled, uh, particularly when compared to private industry, the actual volume isn't significant. But what is much more of relevance is the questions that we have to ask of that data. For example, one question we must ask of our data is, does it include any material that undermines the case for the prosecution? And you will all have been reading recently about disclosure and the challenges of that. In the future, I have no doubt that AI and machine learning will significantly aid our capacity to deal with these questions. But I'm equally sure, just as I'm sure that you know, 20 and 30 years into the digital age, policing will still be primarily a human activity informed by information. Actually, uh, it is certainly the case that we will have to parallel some of these machine decisions uh, with human decisions. And that is going to be a key challenge over the next 10 years. So those are some of our challenges. The breadth of data types, volume of data, the questions we particularly have to ask of it. Then there's the more sort of tactical question, really, of how data and technology act as a facilitator for offending, something I'm sure you will all have thought about. So technology is a, a really good lever for productivity in our activity, but equally and inevitably it can and clearly is very often used as a driver for unlawful activity. So if you think of the democratisation of knowledge that the internet affords, we know that ready access to information via the internet can accelerate learning at a phenomenal pace. I'm sure you're all benefiting from that. But if used for an unlawful purpose, the pace of learning can fuel offending. Where once offenders may have had the intent or desire to escalate their offending, many were prevented from doing so fundamentally because they lacked the capacity, the gateway to entry for serious offending. And that was just too high for, for many of them. The democratisation of knowledge has reversed this trend and allows the pathway to serious offending to be dramatically accelerated. Knowledge that might previously taken a, an offender years to accumulate can now be obtained in seconds. Furthermore, there is a clear risk, and we see it, that the algorithm-based nature of our use of the internet steers those at risk of offending towards harmful material or perspectives. Offenders can be influenced by progressively more extremist views. Any predisposition to offending can be exacerbated and normalised, and the thoughts, the voices, the views that otherwise might have been curbed are actually now pushed and pushed and pushed. And when I make these remarks, I recognise <laughs> that I may be sounding, you know, a bit Luddite. I'm really not, and I'll come back to that. But you will be aware of, of other, other ways in which the internet enables crime, whether you're thinking about cyber, thinking about online child sexual exploitation, the formation of terrorist groups, the escalation of tit-for-tat violence. The fact that offending can happen at speed across jurisdictions and even continents is a very different challenge for us. And in that context, some of you will have seen that the government have recently published an online harms white paper, uh, which, speaking for myself, um, I certainly broadly uh, welcome, and I welcome the debate that will flow uh, from that. Technology is going to continue to transform our lives. It's going to continue to transform our capacity to safeguard the public in future. 
it will, of course, also <laughs> continue to empower uh, offenders, and we have to respond to that. So we have to think about those threats, we've got to keep pace with them, and that our solutions will obviously be driven by technology. So then the dilemmas. How far should the police go in exploiting technology to safeguard the public? Is there not a risk of us <coughs> drifting progressively to some terrifying, omniscient police state? I think in answering the question, I, I, I put a couple of ideas forward. I think we can take real lessons from our approach to using physical force to protect the public. That's a model that we've evolved uh, with our public carefully over the last 190 years. The principles of how and when we intrude upon the rights of an individual, either through the use of force or through the exploitation of data, are, I believe, fundamentally the same. And I'll put forward here four core principles that we should adhere to in order to ensure that any intrusion on the rights of the individual is proportionate. Firstly, the principle of escalation. Begin at the lowest level of use of force or data intrusion and only escalate if needed from that point. You will know that in the Met today, the vast majority of my officers are unarmed. When dealing with those who may be violent, their starting point is conversation, not drawing a firearm, as probably occurs in many parts of the world. In our exploitation of data, we should follow the same approach using minimal intrusion wherever possible and only escalating from that point when needed. Secondly, the principle of developing sufficient scope in our capabilities. Whilst our use of force model may often begin with a conversation, we have the capacity to escalate our use of force all the way through to very high level specialist firearms team in a short period of time. And you will have seen that for example, in the response to the terrible attack at London Bridge, where within minutes, specialist firearms officers are dealing with the threat and uh, the offenders. So that breadth of capability gives the public and our officers indeed some reassurance that we can respond safely and quickly to a very wide range of physical threats. We need to do the same in our use of data. We need a kind of pyramidal model of intrusion where we use low intrusion capabilities often but we have the capacity to escalate to highly intrusive capabilities infrequently if the risk dictates. Thirdly, the principle of gearing or tiering our use of force or data. So having sufficient tiered capabilities that we can accurately match our response to the risk posed. So we think about Taser, I would say it's a very good example of this approach, allowing officers to use actually very little force very accurately when potentially faced with life-threatening levels of violence. You will probably know that in the vast majority of cases in this country, when taser is drawn, uh, supposing I point it at my taser, I, I'm not taser trained by the way, but I point my taser at uh, Charles there, um, in 83% of cases, he will stop offering the violence that he was previously going to offer. So it is actually, generally speaking, very low force, highly accurate, it's not going to hit anybody else, uh, and can deal with the situation uh, fast and well. Need to think about that sort of approach in our exploitation of data, sufficiently geared and tiered, so we minimise uh, intrusion to the suspect and indeed to the people alongside the wider public. 
And the final principle is one of agility. We need to be able to rapidly escalate and de-escalate both our use of force and our use of data in line with the changing level of threat. So we have to be proportionate and we need to minimise the lag time between a shifting risk and our level of intrusion. In a rapidly changing operational environment, that's always challenging, but it has to be a core component of our model. If we're too slow to escalate our response, we won't safeguard the public. Uh, and of course, if we are too fast, we risk inappropriately impacting on the rights of the suspect and the wider public. So to conclude, I think there are some real lessons uh, to be learnt from how our use of force model has evolved in the Met over the previous 190 years. It's based on our values and it's based, of course, on the law and how that has evolved, but it is, most importantly, evolving all the time by a continuous engagement with our public and our, our communities. And I think that offers a template for how we can use data and technology proportionately in the future. But in order to ensure that we continue to police effectively with the consent and the confidence of our people, there are some fiendish technological, but more pertinently ethical and legal challenges ahead, I think, and questions. We need considerable effort and focus on thinking these through. And that effort and focus, yes, needs to come partly from police and partly from tech companies, but my goodness, it needs to come from well beyond policing. Without that focus and effort, we risk either failing our public by not taking proper advantages of the opportunities that data gives us and technology gives us and falling behind the criminal, whether that is the petty criminal, the person in their bedroom, the cyber hacker, or the organized criminals, the, the, uh, the hostile state, if we don't get on and focus on these ethical and legal issues, we risk not uh, having a truly, truly effective in the data age police service. Or equally, the other risk is that unwittingly and with really good intent, we, the police service, end up intruding on people's privacy in a way that proves in the long run to be entirely unacceptable to the public, thereby damaging our reputation and people's confidence in us. So, President, I will finish there. Thank you very much indeed. Mm -mm. So, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, I just want to start with talking about diversity in the police force. You've described yourself as being a little bit different and obviously you're the first commissioner to be an openly gay woman. Why do you think it's important to increase the level of diversity specifically within the police force? Um, well, I've always thought that, and I think now the evidence um, in all organisations suggests <laughs> that that must be right, uh, that more diverse teams, whether you're talking about you know, age, gender, whatever, um, are generally more capable and more agile and uh, certainly able to deal with a wider range of problems. Um, secondly, I want to get the best of the best in uh, you know, London or beyond coming into the police service and therefore I think that's probably quite likely to be more women than I've currently got and um, a more diverse service than I currently have, although I'm very proud of how far we've come. And then finally, there is the point that um, 
I think people need to think and believe that their service that they pay for, which you know is a community-based <laughs> service founded on the principles of uh, working with the consent broadly of the public, is, is a service that reflects the public. And um, of itself, that doesn't immediately, by itself, increase trust. Um, and we can think, all of us, of police services around the world that appear very diverse and have terrible community <laughs> relationships. But it's, there's no doubt it helps. And I walk around uh, London a lot, um, talking to people, and I know that people relate to the service when they see people that seem to be like them. I, can th I see that every day. Uh, I was, as it happens, I was at the 20th anniversary of the um, Admiral Duncan bombing uh, last night in Old Compton Street. And during the service, um, spontaneous applause came, you know, came out from all these people from that sort of primarily, not exclusively, but primarily gay community for their police service. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, the words were, you're so welcome here, we just want more of you. Well, I'm afraid that probably wasn't true. I started on patrol in West End in 1983, probably wasn't true then. Mm -hmm. And I need it to be true of all our communities. So that's, that's why I think it's important. There are a number of different reasons. And one of your top priorities, um, always, but especially since becoming commissioner, has been clamping down on violent crime, or as you say, putting the fear back into the criminal. And as part of, as part of this tough on crime policy, the Home Secretary has recently made it much easier to uh, carry out stop and search under Section 60. Um, under this new policy, black men are almost eight times as likely than white people to be stopped. Do you think there's a racial dimension to this policy? And if so, what do you think can be done to relieve tensions? So our figures in London aren't quite like that, but I'm not going to argue uh, yeah, those with you. UK. Um, but uh, what I would say is I've obviously f led a, a service which has been sort of trying to face down, together with our public, a huge challenge of a lot of younger people getting dragged into uh, criminality and using knives and uh, young people murdering each other, mm. in, in essence at higher rates and on, in group attacks in a way that we haven't seen before. Um, and the reasons behind that are complex and multifaceted. But one thing I'm absolutely convinced of is that part of the response to that, and only a part, is, uh, is you know, significant and stepped up enforcement operations. So that we you know, target those people we know regularly carry knives, those people we know to be violent, and, and that try to find the youngsters who are getting dragged into that and get them diverted away. Stop and search is just one thing we do. And in London, what I can say is that for every white young man that we stop and every white, a black young man that we stop, we have exactly the same, give or take half a percent, one percent sometimes, success rate, if I can call it that. Mm -hmm. So we will find something illicit on about one in three of the people we stop. It makes no difference whether they're white or black. And I know that my officers do not apply, sort of profiling would be the phrase people use, and think, ah, oh, it, I just know they don't. And they have body-worn video, which, by the way, has resulted in a 40% reduction in complaints. And we are not getting a lot of pushback from our communities about us being there and doing stop and search. We're really not. Now, of course, this is a highly controversial issue goes back in policing 
as long as I've been in policing, uh, long before the laws around stop and search were, were um, invented even. But I think my guys are doing it very professionally. They're doing it on the basis of intelligence. They're very courteous. We're trying to help young people understand their rights better and know why we're there and what we're doing. And we are scrutinised by the local public in all sorts of ways. Um, and actually, it is having a big impact because I can see the reductions that are now beginning to happen. It's not the only thing that we've been doing, but it is an important thing that we've been doing. But for every extra effort in enforcement, I've said to the teams, we have to you know, communicate, engage, explain, deal rapidly with any you know, um, misunderstandings or complaints. We have to be out there with the public in the areas that are most at risk. And sadly, in London, I can only speak for London, it's not true in many of the other cities in the, in the UK, the disproportionality of victimisation of young black men is absolutely terrifying and a disgrace in my view. It's a stain on our city that the disproportionality or likelihood of getting stabbed as a young black man is so much higher than a young white man. So those are the areas that we are policing more strongly, the high risk areas. So you think it's legitimate as long as it's sort of intelligence led? I absolutely believe it's legitimate, but I think we have to keep on talking, we have to be sensitive and we have to recognise that, you know, uh, for historic and all sorts of reasons, you know, the surveys will show that, that, that some people have more confidence in their police than others and trust can be lower in the higher crime areas. So that's why we have to be working harder and harder at the engagement. And you've talked about a lot about violence involved in the drug supply chain at every mm. level. And often the use of, especially Class A drugs, recreationally, have been associated with sort of the middle classes and with students. What would you say to those groups of people about the violence that that will cause sort of domestically, but also abroad? Mm. So I've been quoted and misquoted on this uh, a number of times. Um, I mean, we do have an issue at the moment in this country with uh, demand for um, drugs and Class A drugs in particular is what I would be focusing on here, so on uh, particularly cocaine and crack cocaine, but some others as well. We have um, an increased demand mm -hmm. and um, we have gangs fighting over that demand and we have young people being dragged in to that supply, being exploited, as you will have heard about county lines, young people being targeted, groomed, bullied, taken. <laughs> and used to transport drugs, to sell drugs in other parts of the country. That's a major issue. And at every stage of the supply chain, <laughs> right to the moment where the so-called recreational user takes hold of it, there's quite a lot of crime and quite a lot of misery and quite a lot of exploitation. So I simply think that all sort of able-bodied people who are, you know, are, as it were, sound mind and don't, don't think they have um, an addiction, you know, ought to just stop and think about that. Number one, it's illegal. Number two, it's, there's a load of misery. But I don't want people to think that, you know, the middle classes or the students or whatever are the main part of the problem or the whole problem or anything like that. It's a big problem across society. Unfortunately, we do have people who just do this recreationally and I think they shouldn't. Um, moving on to talking about your counter-terrorism, and you've had several oversight roles there. Mm. You talked about the use of force model. Yeah. After events such as the uh, London Bridge attacks with the death of uh, PC Keith Palmer in April 2017, 
do you think that there needs to be a change in governing policy that's slightly more similar to European countries and their police services, where police are more regularly armed when they're on duty? Um, mm. And do you think that needs to be extended and that would make your police force safer in London? So on balance, no, I don't. Um, I mean, I can understand why some people ask for it, but the model that we have gone for is, um, you know, you will see it <laughs> in, in uh, uh, certain very obvious high-risk places, high-security places, you'll see armed officers. You'll also see a very large number of uh, what we call armed response vehicles on the roads of London all the time, 24-7, who are trained now to a high level to deal, for example, with the determined attacker who might be very happy to be killed, uh, the person who might be multiply armed. So they are available. They are also available to support and, you know, I have specialist firearms teams out on the ground working against gangs all the time. So if, a, you know, if the person is known to be armed, likely to be armed, then it will be an armed officer that deals with them. But it's a very small proportion of the force overall. The others can call on them. I feel and have uh, consistently felt, you know, I'm, of course, will be open to argument uh, on this in the future if events change things. But I genuinely feel that the model we have now overall works well. So we do have very capable, very professional, available people to deal with the highest threat. Um, but the, the police officer talking to the member of the public, the police officer reporting a crime, the police officer arresting the shoplifter, whatever it might be, is not armed. And um, the majority of them at the moment actually don't even have taser, although I have been increasing taser uh, quite considerably in the last couple of years and I think that creates a different relationship and I think all you know the different people have different views including within the service but my view is that our community relationships would suffer hugely we don't have massive availability of firearms in this country you know I say to my teams <laughs> improve community relationships suppress firearms take firearms off the street all the time that's what they're trying to do um, and you can see in some other countries the awful kind of arms race <laughs> that, that goes on if you're not careful. And actually, overall, you know, my officers are very, very, very much safer than officers in most countries in the world who are armed. And just to finish before we move on to the audience by talking about something the Matt has been dealing with recently, the group Extinction Rebellion have obviously been occupying... Um, prominent sites in London, such as Marble Arch. Mm. Um, what is your view of these protests, and do you think they're going about it the right way to achieve their aims? So, I talked a bit about impartiality, <laughs> and I talked about protests. So, for us, um, the worth or otherwise of the cause is, is not a consideration. Mm. It is neither here nor there. So, I think when we look at... Um, protest activity. We, we think about, you know, everybody has the right to express uh, their view, everybody has the right to assemble. The law is pretty clear that um, in a liberal democracy, you, know, you should expect some disruption, absolutely, in order for people to be able to express their view. Um, but whether it is uh, forgive me for a second, but, you know, London has so many protests on any one day, you know, whether it is somebody protesting about what is going on in 
India, Venezuela, whether they're, whether they're a far-right protester or a climate protester, uh, they should act within the law. And um, the law enables freedom of expression, some reasonable disruption, some reasonable sort of disruption, and of course freedom of assembly. But when people break the law, they should expect, and will expect, I think, uh, to be brought to justice. And that's what we will do. We've arrested 1,100 people uh, in the um, Extinction Rebellion. Uh, and I think there's a difference between protest and assembly and reasonable disruption and actually setting out to cause and causing very significant disruption to large numbers of people. Financial costs, huge. Cost to policing, pretty big, many millions. Uh, opportunity costs, people not being able to do the things they want to do, other people not able to go about their no basic normal lives. Um, that is unlawful in the way it was, it's been done by some of those individuals and, and we will work with the Crown Prosecution Service and where appropriate we'll bring them to justice. Is it frustrating at all, because you said there's been over 1,100 arrests, obviously that's what they're aiming for, they're aiming to get arrested, so is it frustrating having to do that when you know that's going to play into sort of the public narrative and the attention they get? Um, well, that's our job, really. Um, we, uh, you know, in, I suppose in many another country, um, and I'm sure, you know, around the armchairs of, of the UK, there were lots of people saying, you know, why don't you send the horses in, and why don't you use CS, and why don't you bash them over the head, well, um, that's not the way we work here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they weren't violent uh, in the main, and they weren't actively disorderly in the main. I'm not going to talk about individual cases. Um, and, uh, but they were unlawful. So that level of disruption cannot be, in my view, tolerated, and uh, shouldn't have been, and, but we must work within the law in responding to it. Uh, and that involves arresting and taking away. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can everyone give a round of applause for... Well?